undeliverable mail is beyond unremarkable, as you can imagine, crossing over into the territory of Dull, a series of mundane correspondences detailing travel plans and financial matters, or even, dare I call them ordinary, emotional matters that are no more interesting to those uninvolved than the nocturnal adventures of others such are dreams. Of course, every rule has its exception, and that is the case with the undeliverable mail that never made it to Westermark Manor, so named for the surname of its former inhabitants, scattered on the winds like embers after the fires. The third correspondence was written by Reverend James Parker, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Little Eaton, a settlement in Oregon that welcomed Morgan in and enfolded him into their community just before the disastrous events described in the letter written to Daniel and Madeline in ignorance of his disappearance and her demise, occurrences that disbanded Little Eaton entirely. The whole of Little Eden, a modest settlement of about two dozen families, were all members of Reverend Parker's flock, and as such, none were unaffected by the events at Hartley Farm, which undeniably involved Morgan Westermark, and which Reverend Parker clearly blames him for. The letter makes itself plain, meaning that there is little I can add, and we'll begin reading now. To whom it may concern, the primary intended recipients of this letter are Mr. Daniel Westermark and his sister Madeline, but also anyone to whom Morgan Westermark attempts to endear himself to. It is from the pen of James Parker, formerly the Reverend of the First Baptist Church of Little Eden, a now-abandoned settlement in Oregon Territory. I will send multiple iterations of this letter this being the first. I will distribute these when I come across post offices or forts that they may be carried by travelers headed east for fear that I or any single letter may never make it back to Fisher's Gap from whence Morgan and I both originated and where I am headed now as an act of prevention lest Morgan attempt to be received as a lost son. Once his sins are revealed, I intend to throw myself into the sea, never mind the Lord, for by him I have been abandoned, if he even exists at all, to look down upon me with his perfect indifference. I believe that Morgan's origins from Fisher's Gap are part of what captivated me to him from the start, a beginning that helped grow that which we eventually shared, a kinship between men. I loved Morgan as an intellectual equal, God forgive my hubris. He was a philosophical kindred, a paragon within the church, and when he began to woo my adopted daughter, Magdalena, so named for the potential for sin and redemption based off of her mysterious origins, for I know not of her lineage or otherwise from when she came before she arrived on my doorstep as an infant. I loved him as a son, despite that I had expected that she would devote her life to the church prior to his coming. He arrived in late fall, having spent the summer crossing the mountains and plains. By the spring, he was invaluable to us. (laughs) 
He entered our church midweek, soaked to the skin and thin as a rail, a rarity in our settlement for having made an overland crossing. He fell to his knees and wept. When Magdalena approached him, he looked up at her, kissed her hand, and told her that he was home. And because he spoke with that familiar accent, the voice of my own formative years, something I hadn't known I longed for, I myself found comfort in all that he uttered. As he described his own feelings of refuge derived from the church, and I pushed down the possibility that these feelings derived not from a pure place, but rather the presence of my sweet Magdalena, the greatest of my losses, despite that above this should be my privation of the Lord or even myself, for I'm lost to myself. I suppose, perhaps these forfeitures may have happened slowly over the years, for complacence is by its nature an invisible sneak, and my love for Magdalena offered its own sleepy solace, which allows for distance from myself or the maker to whom I dedicated my life, but can no longer claim to understand the nature of. As Morgan crouched there on his knees, he said that he never expected to feel such amenity so far from his siblings. Later, at dinner, he would blush, not at the trouble he had containing himself, as he hung on the verge of eating like an animal so famished had he been, but to admit that Magdalena bore more than a passing resemblance to his dear younger sister Madeline, who he missed very much. <laughs> Telling this back, it should have struck me as strange, his embarrassment at this admission. But I do not consider any manner of depravity above Morgan, and though I am unable to forget the ways he eventually used his sister's name, I do hate to speculate, as to do so tarnishes the truth, which is that, even should you be kin to Morgan, I would warn you away from him. The manse is a three-room dwelling, tucked beneath the lower level of the church on a hillside. It opened in the front to a garden, and the stairs in the back led up to the church, and from the night Morgan darkened my door, the house was full. Magdalena opened our home to him, for to teach a child to be charitable is to teach them to be trusting, and I spent much of her life promoting alms. I fear I did an inadequate job properly conveying the nature of the sexes as they interact, and although too much of what she knows about men comes from me, and I am chaste not because my order demands it, but in an effort to fully give my life to God and my flock, how misguided that feels now. Perhaps I have long been in the practice of deceiving myself, retelling an inward narrative of a father and daughter too virtuous to discuss such base matters, even as I saw how she used to look at young men. I fooled myself into believing she would devote herself to the church. <laughs> it is possible that misplaced and false practice virtue intended to cover up the worst of us, is what consumed Little Eden, and Morgan was but a catalyst. I suppose I will never know. Magdalena had no shortage of tasks for him, setting him to work harvesting from the garden and chopping wood. Of his own accord, he would hunt, bringing home venison and rabbit meat, as well as insisting on accompanying her to town so that she would not have to carry her own goods back home. Over the months, there were many times when the last of these gave me pause, for I saw, 
Increasingly, they walked closer to each other, with looser postures that allowed for casual touch as the uneven road or simple meandering brought them into contact. <laughs> Though initially I was loath to share Magdalena, this was the best year of my life in recent memory, for Morgan is knowledgeable regarding the Bible as well as history and the classic philosophers. Often we discussed at length the various contexts of all things, delving deep into matters of the mind on topics such as how lasting wisdom applies to the upheaval and potential laziness caused by ever-increasing technologies constantly being developed, and whether these represent a harbinger's dawn. In the winter, where often as not, much of our work was indoors, and there was substantially less than the other times of the year, It was a frequent occurrence that we would begin talking just after supper and continue into the wee hours. It is not that I did not prepare my dear Magdalena for the same such discussions, for from the second I heard her crying in the basket where she lay after being left on my doorstep, following a violent thunderclap, finding the woods from whence she was deposited empty, from that moment I began with her a thinker's discourse. This education took form in orders of magnitude from helping her identify all manner of fruits, flowers, and vegetables gathered when she was small and would venture forth to return with more or less organized botanical bundles, which ultimately brought us both delight. Beyond flora and fauna, I dare say that there was no animal in Little Eden that Magdalena could not name by kingdom, phylum, class, and order, as well as their common name. This, in addition to long hours spent reading to her from the Bible and teaching her to read, as well as assuring her access to the classics, which is how we spent many hours, delicate for how easily they can lapse into bland fruitlessness had they been idle. While Magdalena was a girl of considerable intelligence, in all my attempts at engaging her in discourse, her earthy and literal sensibilities challenged me when attempting to discuss things more ephemeral or hypothetical a struggle not shared by Morgan in his discussions with me or my lovely daughter, much to my chagrin. She had a habit of agreeing with me on all matters of the mind, meaning it was much as though I were discussing matters with myself. In some of my discussions with Morgan, he would bring up a point made to him by Magdalena, from which some knowledge or perspective could be derived, and I would find her discourse with him included opinions which diverged from my own and his. I felt pangs then. More than once, Morgan worried for my heart, for when he would tell me of her opinion that she could not share with me, unwittingly my hand would draw to my chest. And even more so do I feel them currently when I think of the disconnect with my daughter, which was not just unintentional, but something I worked against. It occurs to me now, and it didn't at the time, that perhaps Morgan attributed notions to Magdalena that were not her own, possibly those belonging to Madeline, or just known to him as a scholar of classic arguments. Perhaps these would have been my woes for the remainder of my days had it not been for the events at Hartley Farm, occupied by the widower, Jacob Hartley, whose journals I scour as the plains whisper and my pack mule wheezes at the burden I have laid on his back, hoping each time for a new clue, but receiving none.
Several years passed, Mr. Hartley lost his wife and youngest child to childbirth, deaths which were witnessed by Magdalena at the age of 12 when Little Eden was at its advent, and she was called upon to assist with the birth, a useful skill for any woman. Witnessing the anguish, but not the blessed forgetfulness of childbirth had effects on Magdalena, despite our lessons on the natural world. These seemingly included a devotion to church rather than family, although there were always moments when this wavered, and a closeness to the Hartleys, weekly attendees of the church. I made myself available for my flock, not just for spiritual matters, but the mundane, which until recently I have always believed reflected the real and invisible realm of our Lord and soul. A realm that was mysterious to me throughout the entirety of my life, an aspect that drove my studies, and now that portions of it have been revealed, I realize I never came close to understanding and should not have offered my reverence to. Though I made my availability known, Jacob Hartley did not come to me. Until the arrival of Morgan, were there anyone to entice Magdalena into a life of devotion to family rather than church? It would have been Mr. Hartley, who shifted in his reactions to my daughter, seeing her one day not as a child, but a woman. His face held a softness for her as he opened doors and helped her from her horse, not out of mere politeness, but rather to show that he could care for her above all others. I am certain that in no small part, this is due to the adoration of his own children, particularly Matilda. Never was there a sweeter girl than Matilda, except perhaps my own Magdalena. She was skilled at the art of baking, which she learned from her mother and, I learned from the journals, was passing on to her younger sister Grace. She was funny and witty, but never sardonic or bitter, a delight to be around until the fateful year that Morgan came. Perhaps had Mr. Hartley and my daughter had a fruitful courtship, Morgan would have come into my church and, rather than fall to his knees and proclaim himself at home, in the absence of Magdalena, just asked for a simple meal and been on his way. These speculations, although they could amass volumes, based on the amount of time and ponderance I have spent on them, are unproductive. Matilda, who was 16, was the oldest of the surviving Hartley children. She had a 14-year-old brother, Joshua, and the youngest, Grace, was aged six. I can still imagine them sitting in the front pew of the church together, with their father next to Magdalena and eventually Morgan. I had to look back on the now-departed Mr. Hartley's journals, as well as my own, snatched from the manse out of instinct on the night of my departure from Little Eden, to realize that Morgan's arrival coincided with the poison ivy infestation throughout the entirety of the family's crop, making harvesting all but impossible, a situation by no means beyond Mr. Hartley's scope of expertise. He made a salt and vinegar solution and applied it long prior to the afternoon's rain, which did as much as could possibly be expected. This could be mere coincidence, however, I find it noteworthy that each of our infestations occurred simultaneously to the day while also hoping that this notation does not make my case easier to dismiss, for I remain convinced that Morgan was in league with evil forces, 
possibly come to him during his time on the eerie expanse of the plains from whence I write this letter, as I listen to the wind howl like a druid ceremony outside the fort, knowing that if I go to my window, all I will see is emptiness. And whether or not he was a puppet to the darkness, which I am seeped in, I am convinced he was a hidden hand, maneuvering all involved towards evil machinations. During the week Mr. Hartley was initially attempting to rid his garden of the menace, efforts that were largely unsuccessful at the time. Every egg his hens lay contained a little red speck of blood in the yolk. Harmless and normal in certain amounts, but always unsettling, and certainly so when they affect each egg gathered, despite that it is normally rare. Meanwhile, Morgan had been in town for but a week and a half when at church Matilda began to do her hair in ribbons. An immodest display, something I would not have allowed from Magdalena, but the girl was crafty, for she would arrive unadorned and deftly weave them into her braids as I spoke from the pulpit. She stared, seemingly towards my daughter, who she had always held in the utmost admiration, but in hindsight her gaze may have been landing just sideways, falling on our guest. This was odd behavior for her either way, as she had always been so quiet, a pure and good girl of the utmost silence and obedience. <laughs> it is for these reasons I suspect that she was under a spell possibly cast beneath my own roof. It was in the midst of this, just before the turn of the seasons, that Matilda pulled a dead rabbit up from the bottom of the well, its wet body draped across the bucket. She lifted the carcass by its hind legs and smelled it, Mr. Hartley watching this from the kitchen window. He was shocked into place when he saw her lick the thing's belly all the way up from its chest to its tail. He ran out to instruct her, Needlessly to his mind, for she was old enough to know that this was wrong, but by the time he got to the well, she had disposed of the rabbit already. There was a wet spot on her dress, and he accused her of hiding it in her skirts, yelling at her, asking what she was thinking. When she would not answer, he demanded that she pull her skirts up. When she would not oblige, he pushed her down and began to attempt to search himself, despite her kicking. Finally, she screamed that she had thrown it into the woods, asking him to stop. He sent her to her room, but when he searched the surrounding woods, there was nothing to be found. This on the same day that Morgan told Magdalena and I that he would be out all day, lost to the towering woods. He claimed to be hunting rabbit. In the same way, he had been in town for two months when he alleged to fall ill, albeit in a minor fashion, and confined himself to his room at the manse, something I thought nothing of at the time. But it was while he secluded himself that the Hartley well water went as red as blood and smelled of copper, rendering it undrinkable. Matilda was the first to draw some, a portion of which she put in a little cup for little Grace, insisting that her younger sister drink it. Fortunately, their father found them poised strangely outside, Grace crying and turning her head away from the cup as Matilda held her by the back of the neck trying to force her to drink. He asked his daughters what was going on, and Grace used her sister's distraction to flee, leaving Matilda and Mr. Hartley alone. He looked into the cup and was appalled, despite himself. 
he found himself entrapping his eldest daughter in the same position he had just rescued his youngest from. He held Matilda's neck in the same way, the cup to her lips. The difference was Matilda did not struggle. She looked straight into her father's eyes and, just as he became unsettled by her gaze, parted her lips to drink. He released her and threw the cup aside. By his account, her lips looked bloodlined. As if by an unnatural protection, she did not even get sick. Although the laying hens, whose trough had been filled by seemingly clear water that was surely already contaminated earlier in the same morning, all died bloodlessly and with their necks intact that afternoon. Mr. Hartley asked around with the neighbors and none were having the same issues with their water. go so far as to say that each event at the well was due to actions Morgan specifically took, not being able to prove anything. But taken into account with his sick rest, I will present that these very well may be connected. I will go so far as to proclaim that it is my belief that he was befouling my church with sorcery, and further, I can no longer view the interloper I housed for the better part of a year as innocent in any way, so I would not put any manner of devilry past him. Though based off the account so far, I do not expect you to attribute the same to your kin, and promise that as we reach the end of events, that his undeniable actions will come to light. I just do not wish to tell things out of order, other than to say that I found objects of magic, dried herbs, runes, and a dagger beneath his bed, right above where his head would rest, and I make no secret that this letter is intended to take all from Morgan that he took from me. For myself, the evidence is staggering and unignorable. However, should this sound uncharacteristic of the Morgan you know, Suspicion of his wizardry may allow you to recognize a latent evil held in his breast at long last. That winter on Hartley Farm was marked by calamity beyond even being deprived of the eggs their hens would have given intended to provide sustenance. It began when Jacob went down to the cellar to find a single rotten jar of tomatoes, usually the result of a bad seal due to a mistake in the canning process only to come down the next day and find every can of tomatoes to have gone to rot, seemingly overnight. An eerie and impossible occurrence, not only due to the accelerated rate at which the food spoiled, but that it was exclusive to the tomatoes. He was left with little choice but to take a crate with all the spoiled fruits of his labor and discard them far enough from the house that it would not summon pests and clean the jars. Two weeks later, the peaches followed. By the time he found a bad jar of applesauce, he insisted that all three children carry every jar up from the cellar with the intention of eating them or using them in the preparation of food before they went the way of the previous goods, which also now included their green beans and carrots. It was in the midst of this process that Grace opened one of the jars only to see a maggot squirming its way out of the fruit. She asked Matilda what it was and the older girl smiled as she plucked it out. By her father's telling of it, the larva matured in his daughter's hand, and the fly rested happy to remain on her hand as the swarm rose out of the contaminated jar, which Grace then dropped as the house filled with insects. Come spring, they were surviving off the kindness of neighbors, the nearest of which was two miles away, and the charity of the church. 
Additionally, they consumed their goat's milk, something I would have advised against for the goat's proximity to evil. It was as the tender sprouts of spring blossomed that Mr. Hartley finally requested my presence, although only at the prompting of Magdalena, who described a farm where from the largest tree down to the most humble sprout, each plant was full and vital where it faced south and dead and barren toward the north, split down the middle. During her visit, he confessed some of the strange occurrences described above. Although I wasn't sure what I could do about things that mostly seemed to be horticultural matters, I agreed that an investigation was in order, as the matters described were emblematic of something spiritually amiss. As we were still quite close at the time, I requested Morgan accompany Magdalena and I, though, had I not, I'm sure he would have arrived regardless. We came to the farm and found the plants not in the condition that Magdalena had described, but colorless and decimated. The land salted beneath, as if the ocean, which lay five miles west, had risen up to claim the land, centering at the well. It was as if this impossible thing had happened only for the brine to recede, leaving the home and all else dry but utterly barren. We found the Hartleys at the well. Matilda looked up at her father defiantly. He held her by the arm. Joshua was on the ground, looking stunned. Grace stood behind her brother. The young girl was crying. Mr. Hartley shouted about salt water. Magdalena did not hesitate to run up to the father and daughter, which did not cease his yelling nor compel him to release his grip. He just ranted on regarding how the well was full of salt water and he did not know how. But Matilda was the cause of it. She pulled herself free, turned to her father, and said that maybe she was. It was then that I realized that she was the only of the Hartley children that did not look scared. She ran up to the house and locked herself inside. Mr. Hartley turned to us. He did not even hide that he was crying. He told us that when they had woken up this morning, it had been this way, and asked, Had we seen? Had we seen how she no longer bothered to deny her hand in the strangeness? We followed the girl up to the house, for if she was innocent, she would need comfort, and if she was guilty, it was unwise to leave her alone. In a most baffling turn, we found her in the kitchen, smashing dishes, one at a time, and when a sliver or shard found its way into her flesh, she did not react. Magdalena ushered little Grace out to the barn. She reached to take Joshua with her, but we feared we would need his strength to hold down whatever demon remained in his sister's place as we tried to regain her. Matilda writhed and thrashed as we carried her to the bed, where it took all three of us to tie her down. She screamed and twisted, threatening her bonds until sundown, when she got eerily still, though not due to any forces apparent to the righteous such as we were. For the first time since she was bound, my prayers were audible. I began to recite Mark 123-26, that whatsoever tormented the child would feel unwelcome and be gone. Morgan shot straight up from his tired and cautious crouch, asking if we had heard something. When we said we had not, he left the room, saying he needed to check the barn where the girls were. 
Things did not change in the room in his absence, not at first. Mr. Hartley lit a lamp and began to run a hand tenderly across his daughter's forehead as she lay still and I continued my recitations. It was only when Morgan had been gone for close to half an hour that she roused to nip at her father's hand, biting down hard enough to draw blood, at which point she turned to me. You know what they're doing in there, don't you? She said. And as she did so, she began to move in ways that should have been unknown to an unmarried girl, provocative and seemingly ready. She slipped her hand through her bonds and put it down between her legs and said, You know what they're doing. Go see. Go look at what he's doing to your sweet daughter. As a man of God, and at the time I was still a man of God, it was my duty to stay. Demons are not but the source of lies. I took the hand she was befouling, reminding her that a hand that takes her from the Lord should be cast away. It was as I tied her wrist down once more that a flash of lightning showed me all that was occurring in the barn. I saw that not only was Morgan defiling my beautiful Magdalena, she was struggling to get out from under him, his hands around her neck. I ran from the room toward them, blinded and clear of all thought but my rage through rain and across slick mud. When I arrived at the scene, it was much different, though, for Magdalena was on top of Morgan, doubling the insult of their fornication. My precious daughter, to whom I gave the best of my love, writhed like a whore, a wanton look of pleasure on her face as he moaned, Madeline. lost control in the presence of such evil. Who would not lose control? And it was my hands that found my daughter's neck, as it was with this grip that I lifted her from atop him, and I kept holding her aloft, unable to let go. And I trembled with my rage and my desire that she be clothed and clean once more, and I shook until she did the same, even as she clawed at my hands, even as Morgan thrashed me in the spine. I took one hand from her collapsing throat to slap him away, and though he is a young buck and time is ever advancing my age, my strike threw him halfway across the room, where he almost landed on little Grace. The girl, previously asleep on the hay, awoke in a start and ran into the woods, startling me from my trance. I let my sweet Magdalena down gently, but it was too late. She no longer drew breath. <laughs> I kneeled above her, weeping until Morgan cuffed me, as hard as I could, I imagine, in the ear. I was stunned and knocked to the ground. Morgan took my position above Magdalena to stroke her hair and kiss her, begging her to come back to him, telling her that she was the only one who could save him from his proclivities. Before I could retaliate, Matilda appeared at the barn door with her brother. She held at his throat a piece of broken glass from the lantern. They were both naked, and he was shivering quite noticeably, though she was seemingly unaffected by the night's cold and the rain. Behind them, the house burned. 
I can save you, she said. I can be your Madeline. Look, my brother and I are not so different from you. Morgan approached the girl, or woman, for she was 16, and a marriage easily could have been forthcoming for her in other circumstances. He took the glass from her hand and cast it aside haphazardly, and put his coat on Joshua's shoulders, telling the boy to go. With no further instructions, the young man obliged. Morgan walked toward the girl, backing her up into the wall, mumbling that, despite his efforts, it was apparent that he was irredeemable, so he might as well enjoy himself, a sentiment that I both condemn and embody during these, the last days of my life. He kissed her deeply with the same lips that had so recently befouled my daughter, and when they parted, he commented that, if she tasted of demons, then women and demons tasted the same. He saddled and mounted Mr. Hartley's prize stallion. As if in a coordinated event, Matilda moved to the barn door. Morgan offered her a hand and pulled her up to sit in front of him on his mount, which she did not side saddle with her knees modestly together, but astride. It was required that he hold his hands close to her nakedness to maneuver the reins. They rode off into the night. The house was engulfed in flames, lighting up the woods, but there was no sign of Grace or Joshua. I searched for them long past the dawn. At the church, I offered the explanation that the fire had consumed the entire family, in addition to Morgan and Magdalena, denying my own presence there. Naturally, my story was believed. However, in my heart, I could not deny that I was a murderer, and, without a word to anyone, I left town to come east. I no longer have a god. His silence is something that I can only imitate during the times when once I may have spoken to him in prayer. If I have a god, it is the plains. The plains are an ocean between me and two familiar places, filled not with water, but instead green and gold grass that sighs the whispers of ghosts at the whims of the wind, which is always somewhat there. There is a mountain between me and all that I have lost, and even if I went back, it would not be there to find. Since I met Morgan, our fates have been intertwined, and this loss of family and self and God is something that I hope to share with him. It is what he deserves. It is for this reason that I traverse this expanse, an otherwise unnecessary trek, because after this letter is delivered, I intend to throw myself from the highest cliff into the sea where my body will be dashed upon the rocks. Not before, though, I make it known the conspiracies in which your brother was involved. With the gravest sincerity, James Parker, former reverend. Efforts to investigate the reverend's claims have been mixed. Morgan did live at the church with the reverend Parker and his daughter throughout the fall, winter, and spring of that year, after which time they all disappeared as did the entire Hartley family. 
There is no evidence of the crimes outlined, nor the mysterious events described involving the well or the ghost trees. When Reverend Parker arrived in Fisher's Gap, he found Westermark Manor burnt. Even still, he placed a similar iteration to this letter on the grounds tucked in Mr. Hartley's journal, which did describe the events in a similar way to the Reverend. The whereabouts of Morgan and Matilda remain unknown. Thank you for listening to the Domestic Aggressive Podcast. This has been Morgan Goes West, the third installment of the Year Without Summer Quartet. My name is Meredith Lindgren, and I wrote and read the episode. All sound design and music is by Nathan Paul.